Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. Coming up, the Trudeau government knew at the start of the election about these allegations facing a, another top brass military officer and yet said nothing. So there is zero transparency, clearly, when it comes to this government and our military. So we will talk about why the military can't fix its toxic culture until it actually stops policing themselves. We'll also talk to the lawyer for Major General Danny Fortin, who has uh, been dealt a loss earlier in this week by the courts, which said he'd have to go through the military to clear his name, which means it could take years for this officer to clear his name of allegations he believes came about because of political interference in the Prime Minister's office. And a Toronto medical team making history this week, shipping the first set of live organs to the recipient by drone. It is a major, major medical breakthrough and the start of a whole new way in how we deliver life-saving organs around the world. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. My heart breaks for the small businesses. I'm, I'm a business owner myself. I, I fully understand. Um, and we've been there to support them, by the way. We've given small businesses to a tune of $4 billion in support. We're there for them. We need to support them. Yeah, the Premier heart is breaking while small businesses are left on life support because of his decisions. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, October 15th. Welcome to our weekend. It's a fast week, eh? Clipped on by. Liked it. Okay, get used to the four-day work week. I have no problem with it. I used to. I used to think, no. Crazy, but I actually think it's a good idea now. And of course, the uh, rain fully coming down, likely taking all my Halloween decorations with it. I knew I should have waited, but no, I did not. But nonetheless, we are getting it now. All right, so what did we learn today? We got some clarity on when small business will open, and that is, it's still pretty unclear. Um, the Premier saying that we will get some kind of announcement this week, but it's obvious that it's going to take more than a week to get them open. So it's looking like the two-week schedule, which still, I shake my head. And the premier justifying the decision to give the big venues a green light was that he got consensus around the table. And, you know, when he says consensus, I assume that Mr. Ford means that all the lobbyists at the table agreed that, you know, the big businesses once again take to take, you know, the front seat and, you know, the answers we got just didn't really add up. I mean, we just get the same talking point. Dr. Kieran Moore, you know, told us that the reopening will be done slowly and cautiously. And you know what? If I were at that table, I'd be like, okay, then that would be small businesses open up because that's cautious, right? You collect the data from the small businesses, see what's being done right and wrong, and then you open up the big venues that bring tens of thousands of moistly yelling fans pressed cheek to jowl. No, I mean, now I'm sure it's a coincidence, but it does turn out that the MLSE partnered with the province on developing this new vaccine verification app that uh, was rolled out today. Of course, that'll help get the thousands of bums in the seats of MLSE venues. But uh, Premier today insisting, no, 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 no. That didn't have anything to do with this decision making. Absolutely not. That's a 100 percent. It's not just about MLC, by the way. It's about the CFL. It's about the small towns around Ontario that have small OHL uh, teams, be it, you know, Sault Ste. Marie or London. It, it was a whole encompassing uh, area. But most importantly, you know, we had the consensus with the chief medical officer of health, 
the, the protocols are second to none within uh, MLC, and they're doing an incredible job. But uh, we, we have a plan, a very strong plan, by the way, moving forward, a cautious plan that we're going to support the restaurants. We will get the restaurants open, but we're going to do it cautiously. We're going to roll our plan next week. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't have a medical degree. You all know that. But I do have common sense. And I know that the data has never revealed that small business has ever been the problem. Not the restaurants, not the retail stores, not the salons, not the gyms, not the bars. I mean, you have, we, we had salons closed during the whole pandemic over concerns of COVID spread, and they're not even included in the vaccination mandate. You know, apparently they're too dangerous to open during COVID, but not so dangerous that you need to show proof of vaccination. I mean, you try to square that nonsense. But, you know, that this announcement was dumped late on a Friday of a long weekend. I mean, that no one was available to answer questions, that no one was put out to explain the decision-making process is proof to me that there was very little consensus, that the Premier knew, in fact, there would be massive blowback. So he can tell us his heart breaks, but then I say, get a cardiologist, because as Premier, he's got the power to tell the science table, which, by the way, has made some big mistakes, but he can say, hey, thanks for your advice, but I need to go in a different direction this time. Sadly, he did not. And then we learn, you know, there could be another hit to the business coming in the next few weeks because we learned today that the Trudeau government, they've got a cabinet that will be sworn in on October 26th, right? Okay. But Parliament's not going to resume until November 22nd. Like, hello, where's the urgency? I mean, Justin Trudeau just forced an election on us that he insisted was the most consequential of our time, right? And yet there's no urgency to get back to work. I mean, they've had like, what, eight, nine weeks doing their election stuff, then they had summer break. Because when they go back on the 22nd, all that's going to do is allow them some time to set up committees, elect a new House Speaker, deliver a throne speech, and then they will do a couple of weeks work and then go on break again. And we have COVID aid packages expiring next week. And as far as I understand, they can be extended one more time, but that extension only lasts until November 20th. And that's it, because since MPs aren't sitting until the 22nd, I guess businesses already up against the wall are just going to be left without any idea or direction of what decisions are being made. And I get that Trudeau doesn't worry about monetary issues, but the businesses do. And so I don't know what, I'm sure there are mechanisms in place, but Trudeau's either going to have to bring in some kind of emergency measure or you have to come out and explain to businesses what the plan is if there is one as far as aid is concerned moving forward. I'd say he can't just let them hang, but sadly we all know small businesses have very been, you know, very much been left hanging. And then you think about it, I mean, Parliament has not sat for six months. Six months! We are in a pandemic, a labor shortage, rising inflation, a growing energy crisis. And Mr. Trudeau can go off surfing, but two months to get back to work is just insulting, ridiculous. And if this election told him nothing more, the polling should have been very clear. Canadians didn't want the election. They simply want the politicians to go back to work. Well, they are going back to work. 
but not until November 22nd, right? November 22nd. Oh, the luxury of being in government, completely out of touch. All right, so uh, we learned today that the Trudeau government knew about the latest sexual misconduct allegations against uh, the officer poised to take over the leadership of Canada's military at the start of the election. Color me shocked. Color me shocked that neither Harjit Sajjan nor anyone in the prime minister's office bothered to mention it, which just uh, further points to the lack of transparency on these matters, but that political ambitions... Trump solving the actual crisis within our ranks. And a very good read in the National Post today that lays out the bare and pretty ugly truth, and that is when it comes to dealing with the upper echelons of our military or accountability in the military, it can't happen because the military polices itself. Catherine Marshall, a lawyer specializing in litigation of sexual harassment and others with other cases with Melbourne and Associates, is the author of that piece and joins us now. Good to have you, Catherine. Hi. I mean, I think what is um, um, clear, I mean, the latest case that we're talking about is Lieutenant General uh, Trevor Caggio, and he um, denies all allegations. But let me get your reaction first um, about, you know, the, gov- the, the Trudeau government knowing about this early on. Like we're talking October, or September 5th, they knew about this and nothing was said. I mean, I think it's, it's ridiculous. Um, the past 10 months, there's been about five or six. Uh, senior leaders in the military who have been involved in sexual misconduct um, allegations and situations. Um, you know, clearly, uh, the Trudeau government is is completely uh, looking the other way. And this problem will never be solved unless action is taken. Well, yeah, and it's getting that action. One action would be uh, when this new cabinet is announced that Harjit Sajjan will not be the defense minister. Um, I, I don't see how he can be kept on the job because there's just no way that anyone can have any confidence in the system if he's leading it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, when I, when I wrote what I wrote on my column um, is really the core of the issue, um, which I think is the fact that the Canadian Armed Forces self-regulates and self-polices. And what that means is that um, they have their own police force, their own justice system. They have everything internal. They're very much immune um, from the rest of the regulations and the laws and systems and accountabilities that other workplaces are subjected to. And so the problem with that is that over the years, rather than problems being addressed, they get swept under the rug. And no one is ever held accountable. Right. And and then we get headline after headline after headline. I don't even know actually what number we're up to as far as these sexual misconduct allegations. And and, and I think it's important, Catherine, that we mention none of these have been tried before a court, so we don't know if they're true. Uh, But they are allegations and they keep coming, um, you know, forward. And so what seems very clear is that transparency just doesn't exist either in the leadership of the prime minister's office when it comes to this issue, but in the military as it's as you know itself, because as long as it's got its own justice system, uh, no one's ever going to get justice or have confidence in it. Definitely, look. There's a reason why we have an open court system in this country, um, as many liberal democracies do. Is that you know the um, you know sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So you know things should be tried out in the open. They shouldn't be hidden behind walls. 
And I'm a huge proponent of procedural fairness. And I accept that, you know, most of these are allegations that haven't been proven in court. Um, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be rigorously investigated. And um, a full disclosure, I have several legal proceedings with clients against the armed forces. I am experienced litigating against them. And I think uh, one of the big problems is the armed forces own policies actually say that if an officer is aware of sexual misconduct, they um, need to try and deal with it on their quote unquote own um, right. rather than report it. Yeah, I find this interesting because I, I've got the lawyer for uh, General Danny Fortin on at eight o'clock and we were talking earlier today. I mean, Here's a case where he took it to court, um, but to be told by a judge, you've got to deal with these things through the military first. But that, that is a huge problem, Catherine. If the, those who come forward with these kinds of allegations don't feel that there's any other system, like an outside court system, um, and they have to go through the only the internal military system, you know, what's the, what's the point in coming forward? Exactly. I mean, um, I would say that probably... Um, the vast majority of uh, sexual misconduct events in the military don't get reported because of the fact that people don't see the point and um, the emphasis is on just sort of making it go away and dealing with it on your own. And literally the policy says that uh, one of the things that an officer needs to consider um, when you know deciding whether to report sexual misconduct is the operational readiness and effectiveness of the armed forces. So that could mean anything, right? You could always find a reason or an excuse not to report something. Right. And meanwhile, the damage that this is doing to our military, which gets then painted, you know, as a really terrible place when the men and women in it, uh, you know, most of them um, are terrific people who, um, you know, we're lucky to have because they put their life uh, on the line for our protection. But again, um, this is the fallout of not having proper leadership or a proper po protocol in place to make sure that, um, you know, there's accountability. Definitely. And look, the solution is really, really obvious and clear, and it has been for decades. Um, there's been so many committees and investigations into what should be done. And what needs to happen is an external agency um, that has nothing to do with the armed forces needs to be mm -hmm. set up to run investigations and to police the armed forces, because clearly they can't do it on their own. And I mean, the past 10 months alone is a perfect example of why it's been a complete failure. And it is really shameful to have our senior military leaders constantly in the media for sexual misconduct. Nonetheless, I don't think we've heard the last of it, and um, I don't, it's not going to be a quick fix. I think we both know that, and, and I think also important to point out in your piece, there's a huge bureaucracy within the military itself, and so it's Massive. just layer upon layer of either incompetence or just, I don't yeah. know what you call it. I, I, I thought government was bureaucratic, and then I started dealing with the armed forces, and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's, it's, the whole system is designed around rank. So it's incredibly hierarchical. And then, you know, people don't have authority to do certain things. And just sort of navigating the system internally, it's a nightmare. It's so hard. It takes years for there ever to even have it be a grievance that works its way through the system. If you're a, a complainant, um, it's, it's 
makes the government look lean and efficient. (laughs) That is saying a lot. That is saying a lot. (laughs) Nonetheless, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're very busy these days, so I appreciate it. But I wanted to point out uh, your article today because it's very relevant and very timely. So thanks so much. Thank you. That is Catherine Marshall. She writes about this in the National Post today, and she is with Milburn and Associates. Earlier this week, a court threw out Major General Danny Fortin's attempt to have the courts reverse his sudden firing as head of the COVID vaccine rollout. And the judge in this case ruled that he would have to go through the military grievance process first. And you may recall Fortin was fired very suddenly back in May, but he was never told why, you know, what the allegations were to justify it. So he took the Trudeau government to court, arguing that he was fired for political reasons and is a victim of political interference from the Prime Minister's office and Ministers Patty Hadju, Harjit Sajjan, and the Clerk of the Privy Council. Now, he alleges that his removal was not a decision made by his senior acting chief of defense, which would have been General Wayne Eyre. But given the military investigates itself and has proved, I think, repeatedly it doesn't do a very good job, then it leaves us, I think, to wonder... You know, if General Danny Fortin is looking at months, if not years, of process and delays and a whole lot of legal costs in order to clear his name. But then, of course, by then, the damage will be long done. Natalia Rodriguez is the lawyer for Major General Danny Fortin and a partner with Conway Litigation. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. So just so our listeners, um, you know, understand what happened in this particular ruling, what was it, um, you know, that the judge said um, or that uh, General Fortin could not argue that that she did not see the reason for this to to be kind of elevated and, um, you know, a decision could go through the courts on this? Yes, so the court in this case uh, agreed with the government that had brought a motion to strike, uh, basically striking down uh, Major General Fortin's application for judicial review on the basis that the military grievance process provided an adequate alternative remedy. So this is a concept in administrative law. Whenever you have um, an administrative scheme, like, for example, uh, immigration or uh, the military or any other kind of scheme like that, Um, Anyone who has a decision made within that administrative scheme has to exhaust all of their internal remedies, all of the remedies within that scheme and within that system before accessing the federal court. So essentially, Mm -hmm. the government was arguing that the military grievance process um, was was, was an internal remedy that he had to avail himself to. He had to take his issues there. And if he didn't like the decision at the end of that process, then he could access the federal court, but not until he went through that process. Now, Major General Fortin argued, and we argued on his behalf, that that just wasn't possible in this case, because in this case, the decision was not made within the military. Therefore, Mm -hmm. the military grievance process could not possibly remedy what had been done. The decision was was made by the ministers and the clerk at the Privy Council, including the Prime Minister of Canada. So how could an internal military grievance process ever quash or, or, or strike down a decision made by ministers? It wouldn't have authority to do so. Uh, so for us, this decision is quite puzzling, uh, to say the least. Uh, the judge definitely contorted our notice of application in kind of almost um, inexplicable ways in order to get to her decision. Um, but we we strongly disagree with the outcome here. 
Right. And you would think, and I've seen it happen before in many court cases, uh, in the early times, a judge can often say, mm, this matter probably shouldn't be before me. So you would get some kind of indication early on that, you know, instead of wasting court time and costs, that this was not going to go ahead. However, now that it has and the ruling's been made, can you um, appeal it? Because I'm looking at this from the outside in. And just knowing how the military works, you know, as a silo, you know, its own policing, its own justice system, its own self-regulation and these layers of bureaucracy, when you look at it and the allegations against this officer and the high, um, high profile of this case, by the time he's able to go through the military process, we're talking years. I mean, it's way too, way too late for him to actually get any fair due process. Exactly. So there's there's several issues with the military grievance process, as you've pointed out. One of it, one of them is the time that it takes to actually go through the process and get a decision. Um, but even even without that, I mean, that's that's that is a major issue, uh, no doubt. But there's also the issue of, you know, how do you have this decision struck down within the military grievance process? Um, the way that the court characterized the allegations that uh, Major General Fortin had made in federal court was that it was an omission by the acting chief of the defense staff. So we argued that the ministers made the decision and they politically interfered in the military chain of command. And the judge said, well, if you really look at what Major General Fortin is alleging, he's alleging that the acting chief of the defense staff failed to act. So this is an omission on his part. He didn't do something that he mm-hmm. should have done. He should have been the decision maker. So we can characterize it as an omission. So therefore, it is within the military chain of command. It, it, it's, it's an omission within the military chain of command, and therefore it can go to grievance. However, if you think about it, the acting chief of the defense staff is the final authority right. in the grievance. So is he mm. the final decision maker about his own conduct? How would that even happen? How would it, that even look um, for the acting chief of the defense staff to be the decision maker about whether or not he felt political pressure or whether uh, Mm -hmm. he omitted to do something. It just doesn't make sense for his conduct to be under review and for him to be the decision maker in a grievance. Like those things just aren't are completely incompatible. And in any event, we didn't allege that there was any omission on his part. We alleged that there was an action, an improper action on the part of the ministers. So the whole thing is a little bit, um, it's very confusing the way that this decision reads. Um, and we, we strongly disagree with, with the outcome in this case. And we actually think it sets a very bad precedent. Yeah. I mean, th- th- there are numerous cases like this. We keep hearing them, as you know, over and over again. There's a new one now in the news where we find out the Trudeau government knew at the beginning of the election about uh, another officer who's now facing sexual misconduct allegations. Again, no one said anything. Uh, the, who, knew, who knew what? There's a pattern here of these top officers getting knocked off one by one. Whether or not they have done anything wrong, we'll put that aside. But there is no real due process because it's all being decided in the court of of public opinion and it's hard for me to think that the Trudeau government would not know that they were creating a David versus Goliath fight for the general uh, who held a very high profile job rolling out the vaccine um, you know tying him up legally and with costs uh, fully knowing that 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 you know they had the upper hand Exactly. And this is absolutely a David versus Goliath story. Um, You know, the government has unlimited resources. My client does not have unlimited resources. uh, And he's he's in a very vulnerable position, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, compared to the government. 
And and you're absolutely right. He has been um, he has been treated very poorly from from the beginning, from day one. Uh, he was kept in the dark about the allegations. He was uh, just basically told, keep your bags packed at any time. The ministers may decide that they want you gone. Uh, and so he was kind of left in limbo uh, for two months before he was told, you know, don't come in tomorrow. And then he asked, well, what's changed? Why do I have to leave now? And that was not answered. And so, you know, there, there is obviously here a process that, ha- that is missing. There, we don't have an appropriate yeah. process in place to deal with these types of, of situations. And, and that's a big problem because, like you said, then you end up with people's reputations in tatters and uh, their livelihoods just completely destroyed um, over allegations that may or may not have any merit to them. So uh, it's, it's really a disgrace. Yeah, I mean, it questions like why was he put on TV that day if he was such a uh, a nuisance or a bother or 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 um, you know, a threat. But you know, where does this go from here, Natalia? I mean, he also faces a a decades old. I mean, we're talking four decades old sex sex assault allegation, which is a totally separate matter. Um, but what happens? Is this appealable? Does he li- you know civil action? Where does this go for here from here for him? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we're a little bit at a crossroads. We have this unfavorable decision, but at the same time, the merits of his application, so whether or not it was reasonable mm-hmm. to terminate him, whether or not he was provided the appropriate procedural fairness, that hasn't been determined anywhere right now. Um, so we're a little right. bit at a crossroads. But is the decision appealable? Absolutely, it is appealable. Whether he will decide to move ahead with an appeal, that's a different story. We'll see in the coming days and weeks um, whether we do that. But uh, the decision contains numerous errors that could very well be appealed. Um, and uh, and so that is something that we're looking at and we're considering. Uh, but there are other options open to him. He could potentially start a grievance, even though, in our mm-hmm. opinion and in his opinion, that's really not going to go anywhere uh, because it's it wasn't a decision made within the military chain of command. Uh, so who has authority to strike down that decision? Um Wow. We're looking at all of the options. um, And I think you will, you know, this isn't the end for Major General Fortin. He is, this is not the end of the road for him. This was a preliminary issue that was decided unfavorably for him, but um, he's not, he's not done yet. So I have no doubt that this story will continue to be uh, in the public eye and that he will continue advocating for justice for himself because uh, you know, so far that has not happened, but he's not giving up. Yeah, slow wheels of justice will deny someone justice, but nonetheless, we'll continue to follow this. And I very much appreciate you uh, joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Alex. Always appreciated. That is Natalia Rodriguez, who is one of the lawyers acting for Major General Danny Fortin. So we'll continue following this because you know what? There's going to continually be headlines about this. The next time you see a drone in the sky, it may not be a hobbyist or even a photographer. You actually might be witnessing a life-saving journey. And this did not get a lot of attention because of the long weekend. But earlier this week, a drone successfully carried a pair of lungs across Toronto's downtown in what is the world's first organ delivery. This was a six-minute breath-holding operation that, once successful, proved a major, major medical breakthrough, paving the way to the future of how we deliver these kinds of life-saving organs. Dr. Shaf Kashavaji, I hope I got that right, is the director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program at the UHN. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about, so we know the recipient was a 63-year-old man. He's got a new lease on life. But this is something that you have studied for decades, you know, of getting organs to places faster, more efficiently. Uh, Your team did 53 test flights before the actual operation was carried out. But what was that moment like for you to know the mission was successful? Well, you know, I think, uh, as you said, once you take an organ out of the donor, it starts to die and deteriorate. And so our research has been on preserving it uh, and getting it into the recipient to save a life as soon as possible. So transport has been a part of transplantation uh, from the very beginning. Now, you know, the opportunity to transport by drone, uh, it, it seems obvious is that uh, that that a, a payload that only weighs two kilograms could be transported mm-hmm. with this new technology instead of an airplane. Uh, so uh, that sort of inspired us to start working on this. Um, to answer your question, when you know to see that happen after all of the preparation that it took uh, was was very exciting and and showed us that we truly have open the door to a new era in, in organ transplantation. And naturally, you are much more humble, um, you know, than uh, than you probably should be. But I don't expect uh, anything more because, you know, this is a lifelong passion. And so I will brag on your, your part because this really has put Canada on the map of, of something that could be a real game changer when it comes to organ delivery, not just in, in this country, but around the world. But when you take an organ and as you, you, you say, the organ starts to die very, very quickly. So speed is of the essence. What is required for the transportation of these organs when you're dealing with a drone? Well, when you preserve lungs for transplantation, you we preserve them in the inflated state, and there's oxygen in the lungs, which helps keep them alive. They're cooled so that they need less energy and less nutrients while they're being transported. And then they have to be stored in, in a preservative fluid. Uh, so then we had to adapt that to make it go in the drone. So a much lighter box, a carbon fiber composite box that maintained the temperature and decreased any vibration or any possibility of, of injury to the lung uh, mm-hmm. on, on the way and basically create the same environment that the lung would be transported in normally. And so this is very much in its infancy. I mean, one, um, you know, one successful delivery does not mean that all of a sudden we're going to see thousands of these happening on, uh, on, a, on a daily basis. But it certainly is crucial um, because it can be done, and we now know that. And what are some of the challenges? I mean, this was done in Toronto's downtown in the hospital network, so it wasn't a huge distance. But, you know, there's lots to navigate, be it buildings, buildings. Uh, Birds, exactly. any I, other I, kind of obstruction. So how does how does that how does that how is that done? Is it done by remote control? Is it computer um, data that's in like how does the, the drone get the, from location A to location Z? The the biggest part of the challenge is exactly that that we achieved flying a drone in a populated downtown environment. So there are buildings in the way. There's other air traffic. And there's, uh, most importantly, radio frequency interference that interferes with the navigation systems of standard drones. So we had to develop a drone that could navigate accurately uh, and precisely in that kind of an environment 
Once you can do that, then you can fly a drone across the country and, and, and bring organs back. The other part of it was you're flying over people, so it has to be right. safe. You're also right. flying an organ that is basically a life-saving organ. And so we had uh, a lot of um, safety features built into the drone. It had eight engines. If any one of those fails, uh, if more than two fail, then the uh, ballistic parachute would fire and, and the engines would cut off and, and that would lower the drone safely uh, to the ground with, with the organ. So there were a lot of other features built in to achieve this. And ultimately, I mean, um, this isn't just about kind of expediting the whole process, but it would replace a lot of things like costly airport runs, um, using a plane to transport one one tiny little organ. But it also comes with other rules that you have to get clearance from. So it's not just automatically that you can pop a drone into the sky and, and fly it. But logistically in the in the future... Is the, the federal government, are they working towards freeing up that red tape of like if you hospitals can do this, that they won't have to check for clearance? Or is that part of the, the, the long-term game plan of having this become a regular thing? Yeah, the government was incredibly supportive uh, in, in um, helping us to do this and do it safely because this is something that we will have to figure out. Uh, it, 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 by the way, this is a totally autonomous flight, like it takes off. Mm flies and lands at Toronto General. We had drone pilots that are highly trained to take over at any time if there was any concern. And you have to file a flight plan with NAV Canada like any other plane so that any other planes in the airspace know that this drone is flying across from Toronto Western to Toronto General Hospital. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, But ultimately, it sounds like and I don't know if you can give us a kind of a time, a time gauge, but uh, clearly if this works, um, it will be easily accessible to transplant uh, organs if you wanted to fly one, let's say, from Toronto to London or Toronto to Barrie or to a northern region. Um, is that yep. coming? Yeah, ultimately I would envision that, that we would be able to send a drone to pick up an organ anywhere on the continent and bring it back oh, home and wow. not have to send the whole team so I think these are the incremental steps. This is the first mm-hmm. showing that we can do it, but it'll open the door to that sort uh, of, of access and will you know, um, make more organs available and transplant accessible to more people. Just quickly before I let you go, doctor, because I could literally talk about this for the next hour. Um, when are we looking at this for broad use? Uh, what's the timeline like for that? Well, I think a lot of things have to happen. And and like you said, uh, you know, a lot of regulatory issues need to be addressed. Now that we know it's technically possible, how many drones can you fly around the cityscape at the same time? How do you prevent collisions? How do you uh, improve the safety? And, And I think all of this will come as the capability to do it is there. So we've shown, yes, you can do it now. And the important thing you touched on is, you don't need an airport anymore. Right. So, I mean, I think that's huge, too, uh, in, in the future of expanding uh, transplantation. Nonetheless, very exciting. Congratulations. I know that this is not an overnight project. This has been kind of decades or years in the making, but uh, certainly very exciting and certainly exciting to see Canada on the uh, front of this and something that will benefit the whole world. Doctor, thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you for having me.
Dr. Chef Kajavji is his name. He's the director of the Toronto Lung Transplant Program at the University Health Network. So we'll keep an eye on that exciting development. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.